Why don't you join me as we pray together? Lord God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, your son, who is both a lion and a lamb. A lion because he rules with all authority and a lamb because he died as our great sacrifice. And we do praise you for that. And we praise you for the diverse nature of this son of God who is both a lion and a lamb and both fully God and fully man, who is king of kings and yet humble and lowly. And I pray this morning that as we think on Christ the Lamb, this great sacrifice that you made on our behalf to redeem us, I pray that a truth that maybe we've heard a hundred times or a thousand times would just pierce our hearts afresh today that you would minister to us through this truth, that we would be encouraged by it, that we would love you more in reflecting on it, that we would trust you more, that this is the way that you have made for our reconciliation, that we would hope in you and wait for you with eager anticipation. So Lord, we just ask that you would bless this time, send your spirit to minister to us in Christ's name. Amen. So open your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And if for some reason you don't own a Bible, but you would like to have a Bible, we have our little welcome table back here. And there's some black Bibles on there that you're welcome to take and keep that. We would love for that to be our gift from us to you. And we've been in this Advent series. And in the series, we've been looking at Jesus from a few different viewpoints with the goal that we might better understand who this Christ child is at Christmas, this child born to Mary in Bethlehem. Two weeks ago, we talked about Christ the man, and we looked at this idea that in the person of Christ, Jesus was fully human. In that sense, he was like us. And last week, then, we reflected on the fact that Jesus is Christ the Lord, and how even though he was fully human, he is also fully God, Lord of all. And today we're going to rejoice together as we think about Christ the Lamb. The wonderful truth that John the Baptist would exclaim with great wonder and amazement when he met Jesus by the bank of the Jordan River and he said those words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ is not only fully human and also Lord God, but he was sent by the Father to be our sacrificial Lamb. The lamb who would be slain, whose blood would atone for the sins of all of those who place their faith in him. And it's important, I think, for us to remember this as we celebrate Christmas. This singular purpose for which Jesus came. Why? Why did he come? He came to shed his blood and to atone for sin. Christmas is rightly a time of joy Because the Messiah has come. But let us not forget what the prophet Isaiah foretold about him. And the reason behind his coming. In Isaiah 53, it's written that he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, appointed or acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This Jesus, he came like a lamb being led to the slaughter and the cause of his death was our sin. He was innocent, but he died for us. And that's why he has come, to take our death upon himself as our sacrificial lamb. And this is a marvelous thing that we should not miss as we reflect on Christ at Christmas. So with that as kind of the backdrop, let's read in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 13 through 21. And I would love for you to read along with me. Peter writes, and the Spirit says, Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully upon the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. As I mentioned throughout our Advent series together, this is a time of waiting. I mean, it's why we light the candles. They burn in expectation of the arrival of Christ. We enter into a season of waiting for the birth of Christ as we reflect on what happened 2,000 years ago. But far more importantly for us, this time of waiting in reflection upon what happened in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago is a time of waiting for us even now as we wait for the reappearance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is even now returning to us. Not as a child in a manger like he came the first time, but as the king in all of his glory coming to rule and reign. And so Peter tells us in verse 13 that we should be sober-minded, that we should be ready for action. As we wait, we should be prepared. Our hearts should be filled with a hopeful expectation that the revelation of Christ is soon coming in his second appearance. And then Peter gives us this call to action in verses 14 through 17 that we're going to look at. And he also gives us a call to remembrance, a call to know in verses 18 through 21. So another way to say this is we're, Peter's going to get at the what we should do in verses 14 through 17. 
and he's going to get at the why we should do it in verses 18 through 21. So let's work our way through this together. In verse 14, the first thing that we're told is that we shouldn't conform to our former passions that once ruled us when we were ignorant of God and we were not his children before we understood God's love for us through the sacrifice that Christ made for us. Before we understood the gospel, we lived a life entirely to ourselves. And you might be in this room this morning and you might still be in that place where in reality you are not living for Christ, you are living for yourself. In that place, Christ is not Lord and Master. If that's who you once were, you didn't obey him or follow him. You lived according to your own passions and desires. You thought of yourself as your own sovereign ruler. You did what you want, not what he wanted. And tragically for us in that position, that didn't lead to fulfillment or joy or life. No, it led to tragedy. It led to death. Which is why then when we finally heard the gospel and we had our ignorance cured by the truth, we left that life. We abandoned it in order to be called a child of God and enter into his loving embrace. And now we're told in verses 15 through 16 that as children of God, we are seeking to be like the one who is our father, the one who rescued us. Since we are now God's obedient children, saved out of death and saved into life, we have been made new. We've been made like him. He is holy and we belong to him and therefore we are holy. Christ is holy and Christ has called us to himself and therefore we are and we must be holy in all of our conduct just like he is holy in his conduct. Now I want you to notice something about verse 16. So look there real quick. If you look at verse 16, Peter writes, or Peter says, It is written, you might be holy, for I am holy. You're like, no, that's not what my translation says. That's not what it says. And it doesn't say you ought to be holy because God is holy. No, it says you shall be holy because God himself is holy. And that word shall in the Greek, I want you to understand that it's in the imperative, or it's not in the imperative mood. I'm sorry. It is in the indicative mood. So the imperative mood is the mood of command. You must do this thing. But that's not how the verb is written here. The verb is written in the indicative. It's a future indicative. And the indicative mood communicates things that are true. It is a statement about what is real. Like saying something like this, Today it shall be sunny. I am not commanding the sun to shine and the clouds to stay away. I know it sounds a bit weird, but the point is that I am simply declaring what is real about the weather today. It shall be holy. That's the indicative mood. So in other words, Peter, in his call to holiness here, is not giving us a command to be holy. Rather, he is giving us a promise that God himself 
declares for those who love him. A promise regarding what Christ has accomplished in us who trust him. Friends, we're being told that it is actually possible for us to be like our heavenly father, to be holy, to no longer be conformed to the passions that we once had when we were God-haters, because Christ has made us his, and he is giving to us his very own holy nature. This is one of the reasons Christ the Lamb has come, to gather to himself a holy people. And we will be holy, because the holiness that we have is not our effort, it is God's holiness given to us by the gift of the blood of the Lamb, the sacrifice that he made. Remember, when John the Baptist saw Jesus by the Jordan River, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, there's a double meaning in those words. Jesus takes away our sin first by forgiving us of the sins that we've already committed in the past. Maybe there's some people in this room who are guilty of sin and for whatever reason you can't shake that sense of guilt. By grace you've been forgiven. Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He's given you grace and you are no longer defined by those sins that you committed in the past. But Jesus also takes away sin, secondly, by removing the power of sin over us as he conforms us into his own image. Maybe part of the reason why you don't think you're forgiven of sin in the past is because you fully anticipate to continue to do that sin in the future. And you need to hear that Christ is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, which means that you don't have to do that sin going forward. You can be holy as he is holy because he offers you his holiness. Jesus takes away the stain of past sin through the shedding of his blood. And he also takes away the power of future sin through his Holy Spirit alive in us. So be holy and be encouraged as you fight for that holiness because God promised that he would make you holy just as he himself is holy. This brings us to verse 17 then, where we're told that if we call on God our Father, then all of our concerns should be focused on conducting our lives in a manner that pleases him. Look closely at verse 17. And I want you to understand what's being said here. As Christians, we are in exile. Don't you feel that deep down in your soul somewhere as a Christian? Don't you feel like something's wrong with this world and it this doesn't feel like home? Don't you feel a longing for something else, something more? This world is not our home. For 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years, however many God graces you with, you are just passing through this life as a believer. 
We are wanderers. We've left our land of origin where we once did those things that were of our natural passions in sin. And we've turned to Christ and we are now journeying towards our true home. This place prepared for us by our Heavenly Father who is also in waiting, waiting to receive us home to himself. Now, if you're in a strange land, if you've ever traveled to a different place, uh, I would say in particular a different culture, a different country, then you understand that it can be tempting sometimes to fear that different place, that strange foreign land. I remember being on a mission trip in the Dominican Republic and I was 19 years old and um, I was going to be leading these teams of students that came down. It's actually where I met my wife. And the, the missionary who lived there, he handed me the keys to this big van and he's like, you're going to be our driver. Uh, and what you need to understand is that if for some reason you get in an accident, the only thing that you need to do is flee the scene. Just come, come back to the house as quickly as you can. And um, what we'll do is, you know, we'll give it a couple of days to calm down and then we'll go down to the police station. And I'm like, what in the world? He's like, yeah, because in the Dominican Republic, if you get in a car accident, the police just arrest everybody that's around and they throw them all in jail. And then a couple of days later, when they kind of get to the administrative time, they deal with it. And he's like, and you don't want to be in jail. You, trust me, you want to be here. So we'll, we'll go down to the police station later. I'm thinking, flee the scene of a car accident? Like, don't you get double time for that? I can tell you, I conducted my driving with fear while I was in the Dominican Republic that summer. But that's not what Peter's talking about, actually. He's not talking about having fear for the land in which you are passing through as an exile. If we did that, then we would conform to the ways of this world in order to please those people, to not have them look down upon us. And if we conform to the ways of this world as we pass through, then we would be abandoning the holiness of Jesus, who is calling us home. Instead, actually, Peter is telling us to fear the one whose great pleasure we have committed ourselves to seeking even as we pass through this land. We shouldn't fear that our conduct might upset the people of this land. We should fear that our conduct might upset the king to whom we are traveling when we meet him and he welcomes us. We're to fear God and God alone is what Peter is saying. That our fear of him might rightly drive us to obey him and to walk in this holiness that he offers to us. That we would commit the totality of our lives to his good pleasure. We are to fear God as we make our way through this life as exiles. So that when we finally do stand before him in judgment, we would have no reason to shrink back from his holiness in shame that our deeds did not reflect his holiness. May it never be that we would be more fearful of this land that we're passing through than of the God to whom we are heading home to meet. And Jesus, 
He is rightly to be feared. Because like Leanne said in our Advent reading, he is the lion-like lamb. He is the one who is both tender in his mercy to those who are humble and broken, but terrible in his wrath towards those who are rebellious and proud. And not only that, but this child Jesus is our great example of a God-fearing life. What does it look like to not fear the land in which we are traveling through as exiles, but fear the one who is calling us home? Look to Christ, who made the most courageous stance against this world, who was most bold to never bow down to the tide of sin that pressed against him, seeking to destroy him. He never fell. He was steadfast to the end. And that kind of holy conduct is what he gives to those who fear him. But lest we feel crushed under the weight, I mean, does it ever feel like holiness is too much? You ever feel like what God has called you to do and be is far more than you could bear? Well, unless we feel crushed under that weight, um, Peter is actually going to remind us of what we know, what we must cling to with great hope and assurance. He tells us that we should be reminded of these things. Look at verses 18 and 19. He's going to explain that this is all possible to us because we've been ransomed out of the feudal dead religion and spirituality of those who came before us. And the price of our ransom, it wasn't precious materials like silver or gold. It was the infinitely more precious blood of Christ, whose blood was shed like a sacrificial lamb. So let me touch for a moment on this feudal religion of our forefathers, the feudal ways of those who came before us. From the Hebrew perspective, I mean, Peter was a Jew, and he certainly had in mind probably the Jewish background of the Bible. All the religious practices that the Old Testament tells us about in the Mosaic Covenant, these would be things like the sacrifice of bulls and goats to cover sin. It would be the practice of the law, the Ten Commandments, or the 613 laws of the Torah. Peter would probably have in mind here the sign of God's covenant promise with Abraham, circumcision of the flesh, that said that the Jewish people belonged to Yahweh. But Peter encourages us by reminding us that these things, in fact, were futile. They got the Jewish people nowhere. They were ineffective in accomplishing salvation, which is why from Before the foundation of the world, God foreknew and foreordained a better way. As important as all those religious practices were to the Jewish people, they did not ransom anyone from the wrath that God has towards sin. They only operated as a kind of sign, a kind of foreshadowing of what would ultimately come in the person of Christ. Which Peter tells us in verse 19 is Christ the Lamb. The sacrifice that he made. That's what all these things are pointing to. But even if you're not a Jew, Christ has still ransomed you from the feudal ways of your forefathers. And I think we talk about this somewhat regularly around here at Maricopa Springs. 
that one of man's big problems is that man cannot know God. Man, man cannot find God on his own. He cannot make his own way to the creator God. Every religious idea that comes from the mind of man, it is absolutely futile. It leads nowhere. The Buddha knows nothing about God. The Upanishads, if you read them, will not lead you to divinity. Joseph Smith and Muhammad, they wrote meaningless works of futility because at best they were just guessing and at worst they were deceived by spiritual evil that they might lead other men astray. And so religion is absolutely futile to save man, including the religion of modern man, which is called scientism. It will not take you to God. And so Peter points us to our true and only rescue when he says in verse 20 that Jesus Christ was made manifest in these last times for our sake. What he is saying is that since it is futile for man to try and make his way to God, God in a great act of compassion and mercy came to mankind as the child Jesus born in Bethlehem. The imperishable, eternal God, creator of all things, the one who has been from before the foundation of the world, he became born. He became a man like us so that in Christ the Son, we might know God. We might know the glory of the Father. No longer does man need to guess and speculate about who God is. Now in Jesus born in Bethlehem, God has come to us that we might know him and be restored to him and worship him and be like him. And this reconciliation between God and man, it was, it was accomplished in three ways that Peter speaks of, okay? Verse 20 tells us that before the foundation of the world, God has had this plan in mind. And the first part of the plan is that God would be manifest among humanity for our sake. This is the incarnation. Part one of the plan, the incarnation. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. God has come to us in humility, in the person of Jesus Christ. But let's not forget what the angel declared to Joseph, that Jesus would save his people from their sins. This is the second thing that Peter mentions in verse 19. Christ came not merely as a human and not only as Lord and King, but he came to us as this lamb without spot or blemish. Now, the Old Testament is full of allusions that point to Christ, full of foreshadowings that prepare the people of God to receive the Messiah. Hints from those old days of the Jewish forefathers about what the Messiah would be like. But the image of the Savior being a lamb is central to the story. It's one that goes all the way back to the Exodus from Egypt. Flip with me to Exodus chapter 12 in your Bible. Exodus chapter 12. That's to the left in your Bible. If you're not super familiar, it's towards the beginning. Exodus 
And I want you to read with me verses 1 through 8. Exodus 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Now this is the great foreshadowing of Christ the Lamb. As the last plague, the plague of death, was about to descend upon Egypt and kill the firstborn child of every Egyptian household because of the rebellious hard heart of Pharaoh and the Egyptian people, God commanded his people, the Jews, the sons and daughters of Abraham, that each family should take a lamb from their flock and bring it into their home. It had to be a lamb without blemish, pure, perfect. And the family was to live with that lamb for four days. Did you notice that? From the 10th day of the month to the 14th day of the month. And on that 14th day of the month, they were to butcher that lamb and take its blood and spread it over the doorposts of their home, signifying a substitutionary death so that the angel of death would pass over that house where the lamb paid for the death of the firstborn. And then they were to cook the meat of the lamb and eat it with bitter herbs. That word bitter is important because this is a bitter, painful ceremony. It was meant to teach the people that their salvation from the plague of death and their salvation from slavery in Egypt was at the bitter cost of blood, a blood sacrifice, the blood of the lamb. Now think about this process for a second, okay? I have four children and we have a dog and our dog is so emotionally attached. My children are so emotionally attached to the dog that it's like, it's almost like the seventh member of our family, okay? That's how my children feel about this dog. And on the day that my dog dies, my children are going to be devastated. I mean, we hope that it's many, many years from now, but Leanne and I have already discussed, like, when this happens, it's going to be bad. Now, can you imagine the weeping and wailing throughout the Jewish homes where little children had welcomed into their household a year-old baby lamb to be part of the family for four days, treating it not like a barn animal, but like another member of the family? 
I mean, this Exodus text is commanding the Jews to adopt this lamb into their family and let it live with them in their home. Like, I know little kids. They're going to sleep with the lamb. Right? And for four days, the family grows attached to that little lamb. Only on that fourth day, to butcher it, drain its blood, paint it over the doorpost of the home, and then eat it. I mean, my children would wail if the lamb died of natural causes. Like, I suspect they would want to tie me up when I go to get the knife to slaughter the lamb. Do you see what's going on here? In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the Apostle Paul calls Christ our Passover lamb. So friends, don't you see? Peter's telling us that Jesus Christ, the babe that we celebrate at Christmas, he is our true sacrificial lamb without blemish. And he comes into our home at his birth in Bethlehem and he lives among humanity like one of our family. And then after a time, we butchered him for our sin and we nailed him to a cross and his mother wept and wailed. And this happened so that at the sight of his blood, God would not pour out his wrath upon us for sin. Flip back to 1 Peter chapter 1. And in verse 21, we're told that through Christ the Lamb, we are believers. That is, that through the sacrifice of Christ the Lamb, we've found favor in the eyes of God. We now know and believe that God's position towards us is not wrath. It's not retribution. It's not punishment. It's love. Because he gave his beloved son up for us. And through Christ, he has given us the faith to believe that we are accepted. And this brings us to the third part of God's plan for our rescue, which Peter mentions. And it's the resurrection. So we have the incarnation, the birth of Christ. We have the sacrifice, the death of Christ. And we have the resurrection of Christ which is how God accomplishes our redemption. Christ, our sacrificial lamb, didn't remain dead. I mean, there's a sense in which it's like, joke's on you guys. He rose from the dead after giving up his life as a willing sacrifice. God did the impossible to seal his plan of redemption for his people. Just as he did a miracle to bring about the birth of Christ in the womb of Mary in Bethlehem, God did a miracle to raise to new life the dead body of Christ after he had been slaughtered on the cross. And through his incarnation and his death and his resurrection, we perceive the glory of God the Father in Jesus Christ. And we believe because it's wonderful and it's true and it's beautiful. And our faith and our hope is not in empty speculation. 
It's not in religious thinking or guesses or humanistic dreams of utopia. No, it's not in the law of Moses or even in our own efforts to please God and show him what a good person we are. No, our hope is in this God who for us sent his son to die and then raised him to new life that we might live forever, eternally. So how should we respond to these wonderful truths? How should we respond to Christ the Lord born in Bethlehem? How should we respond to Christ the Lamb who gave his life as a sacrifice for us? How should we respond to this wonderful truth of the resurrection? Well, actually, we already covered that. Peter told us already in verses 14 through 16. We should be obedient children of God, walking in integrity to his commands. We should love him for his grace and his mercy. We should live lives of holiness because Christ the Lamb is holy and we belong to him. We should place our hope in him and our trust in him. And we should prepare ourselves to receive him eagerly when he comes. Like it says in Revelation, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. Ready. 